1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The Trump administration pulled out a lot of the military advisors. You know, there were 700. Now there's only 100 military advisors there. And the Biden administration is trying to say, is putting more military forces back in going to help? Is it going to stiffen the spine of the African Union to stay longer? Is it going to solidify the gains that have been made in Mogadishu? Or is this a situation like Afghanistan where, you know, no matter what we do, we're not going to stop the, the rise of, of Shabab over time?
2: I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 27th, 2021. In November of 2020, a raid against terrorists in Somalia led to the death of an American working for the CIA's Special Activities Center. This after the Trump administration had eased combat rules and airstrikes in Somalia surged. Now, the Biden administration seems to be reviewing its policy towards Somalia and the Al-Shabaab terrorists there. I talked about it with Julian Barnes, a national security reporter for the New York Times, focusing on the intelligence agencies and co-author of a recent article in the Times that uses the story of the hunt for an elusive Al-Shabaab bomb maker to shine a light on the group's continuing strength and the challenges for US policy. Joining us was former CIA senior analyst, Amelia Colombo, now a senior associate to the AFRICA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as senior security risk analyst at Voxcroft Analytics. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 27th, Somalia, Al-Shabaab, and the United States, with Julian Barnes and Amelia Colombo. Let's get started with a brief overview of... Somalia and, and how we got to where we are today. Now, Amelia, I don't want to go back to ancient history or even the 1970s or even the 1990s with Black Hawk down, the rise of the Islamic courts, all, all that. Let's let's talk about the, the mid 2000s with the rise of Al-Shabaab and the evolution of what's happened in Somalia politically and in terms of Al-Shabaab and its relationship with Al-Qaeda from then until the last couple of years?
3: Well, I'm glad you phrased the question that way, because uh, when you first asked me to join the podcast, I was afraid I would have to go back to ancient Somalia, and we do not have time for that. So this is a perfect <laughs> place we'll to spare start. We'll Thank you. So al-Shabaab uh, first arrived on the scene, you could say, in officially in 2006, with the fall of the Islamic Court Union. Ethiopia came in, to Somalia to help accelerate that fall. And that was actually a key factor in al-Shabaab's ability to recruit. They were able to play on that sentiment against foreign intervention in domestic affairs to recruit both domestically and abroad, where you had regional experienced fighters who observed this foreign intervention and allied themselves to al-Shabaab as a result. And since then, we've seen the group really grow. They've even, in um, some places, created a a sort of a parallel government that the locals, to some degree, have really responded positively to, considering the environment, the chaotic political environment in which they live otherwise. To some degree, al-Shabaab has brought stability into little parts of Somalia with sort of a court system, taxes, provision of services to the communities where they operate at a small level and not enough to outweigh the atrocities that they've committed, but enough to bring some stability to little corners and to garner popular support in that way as a result. Al-Shabaab is affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Some of their founding members trained abroad in Afghanistan, and in 2012, they made that relationship official. I think it's always important to keep in mind when talking about The relationships throughout Africa, including al-Shabaab, relationships between local groups and the sort of international organization, it's important Mm -hmm. to keep in mind that the local affiliates still are allowed to generally operate independently, do what's appropriate for them in their local context, and not necessarily in response to orders from abroad. But these factors, the ability to sort of garner popular support through both fear and benevolent actions... To play on some of the sentiment, anti foreign sentiment, and taking advantage of the political instability and the weakness of the security services have all really come together to allow Al Shabaab to grow and thrive since 2006.
2: But it's fair to say that Al Shabaab, from its beginning, but up through now, it's operating in a country we're calling Somalia, but there is no unified country, there is no political entity controlling the entire territory of Somalia.
3: No, I think that's a very fair and important point to make because the government is so divided. I, I guess this goes a little bit back to the ancient history we were trying to avoid, but the politics of Somalia are so much based on these clan dynamics and subclan dynamics and the competition for power for your clan, a competition for resources, for influence, It's very, very difficult, as we've seen through the decades, to form a strong, coherent national government that can exert control, that can provide governance to these different parts of the country, um, that can provide security, because these same sort of clan dynamics that are disrupting politics are disrupting security services. And we saw that as recently as late April when a political dust-up over... The presidential election resulted in full on units of the military returning to Mogadishu, leaving their deployments to support their clan leaders, their clan community. Uh, it's very disruptive to the security services and something that gives al Shabaab a huge advantage on the ground.
2: That is an excellent foundation for us, Julian, to jump into some of the details of the article that you and your colleagues at The Times just published. So pick up the story from there with the individual within al-Shabaab, not, not at the very beginning, but became affiliated with the organization. And this is Abdullahi Osman Muhammad, also known as Engineer Ismail. Who is he and why is he important in this whole story? He's important for two reasons.
1: He is a bomb maker and a propagandist. And if the United States has learned anything from the last half of the global fight on terrorism, it's that the propagandists and the bomb makers are even more important in some cases than the sort of operational commanders who are easily replaced. Now, Engineer Ismail, he he came from a middle class Family, a conservative family. His father worked for a charity that had ties to Al-Qaeda. And then in that invasion that was mentioned, the Ethiopia's invasion of Somalia, that's where Mohammed um, you know, stopped working for Al Jazeera. He joined Al-Shabaab. He was he was made more radical by that event and started as a propagandist drawing on his experience uh, working in television, working for Al Jazeera, but developed over time bomb-making expertise. And it is that expertise, right, or maybe the combination of those two expertise, that Gets the attention of the United States government, right? Uh, a series of very sure. prominent bombings in Somalia kill many people. He is tied to some of these. He is their most prominent bomb maker and propagandist. He's a key aide to the supreme leader of al-Shabaab. And in September 2020, the U.S. kind of designates him a global terrorist. And this puts him square in the, in the sights of both the U.S. military and the Central Intelligence Agency.
2: And that, that timing is interesting because it, it comes just a couple of years after, maybe three years after that huge bombing that I remember in right in the heart of Mogadishu. It was a truck bombing, and yet it killed some upwards of 500 people, which was just shocking, even in the context of Somali violence being so rampant in those those years.
1: It's one of the most deadly bombings the world has ever seen. I mean, the the amount of people killed in that is astonishing even now. Even though we, you know, experienced so many years of Iraq and Afghanistan where we'd have these terrible bombings that killed so many people, that bombing was something else again.
2: Yeah. Amelia, let's briefly, before we move this story forward, let's talk about the, the regional context here. So, You've got, you know, Engineer Ismail here, who's, who's moving from propaganda into explosives. There are massive attacks going on, like the one in Mogadishu, but there's also a lot of fighting across Somalia. And there's also activity, interest, even intervention from the countries surrounding Somalia. So walk us at, at a high level through some of the outside interests from Kenya up to Djibouti.
3: Well, I think the region as a whole is, of course, interested in stability, and the the region as a whole is eager to avoid spillover of this conflict into their own countries, and especially terrorism. I mean, Kenya has also experienced some of al-Shabaab's activities, um, Tanzania as well. Uh, So I think these are all countries that are eager to contain this instability. And I think there are countries that need to see, um, for the benefit of the region, Somalia, to not only, not only just contain that threat, but to actually eliminate it and to see Somalia grow and become a force of stability to alleviate pressure on humanitarian aid to reduce that security risk. The regional dynamic, I think, is quite complex because these are countries that have their own history, and it sometimes it plays out in Somalia as well. The regional countries are trying to contribute to stability in Somalia through AU auspices. AMSAM is the deployment there, but we often see these dynamics play out in the country and can actually exacerbate some of the tension there. For example, Ethiopia at times has intervened in areas where the sitting president and his allies are stronger, and that creates the perception among opponents that Ethiopia is allied with this particular individual and can create some tension within the country over Ethiopia's aims and intentions there. So it's it's a complex sort of web of interests and that can be quickly misinterpreted rightly or wrongly based on again these sort of clan politics and the way people view a lot of what happens in Somalia through that clan lens.
2: Mm-hmm. All that said though, Al Shabaab, apart from its Pledge of allegiance to Al Qaeda that you mentioned earlier, Al Shabaab is a a Somali entity. It is not a transnational movement across country borders trying to achieve some, you know, pan Islamic entity across Africa. It is a, a Somali thing.
3: Quite right. Oh yes, definitely, it's a homegrown insurgency, um, a homegrown armed group that arose out of sort of Somalia's unstable political context. Uh, To the extent that we've seen them active elsewhere, like in Kenya, it's more in response to Kenyan interventions and that sort of regional political dynamic, rather than some greater goal that would cross borders.
2: Mm -hmm. All right. So we have this context, and then we have a particular raid that occurred last November Julian, you and your colleagues have have reported on this and given some new detail recently about the fact that the Central Intelligence Agency has been conducting a number of raids and other activities in Somalia, the United States not choosing to put tens of thousands of troops on the ground in Somalia, but operate much the same way as in a place like Yemen with cooperation with local power brokers and then a whole bunch of special operations type activities but there's one very important raid that presumably was going after engineer Ismail in November of last year can you walk us through what happened in that event and and what the tragedy was related to it for the US side
1: sure and you know i should note that Accounts differ on who the exact target is. Somali officials and an American official told us that Engineer Ismail was the target of that particular one. But other American officials dispute that or won't confirm it, I should say. In any case, Engineer Ismail is the larger target, right, of the CIA operations. Whether they thought for sure they were going to get him that day or Mm -hmm. not is – in some dispute. Nevertheless, on the night of November 6th, into the early morning hours of November 7th of last year, Kashan, which is the counterterrorism force that the CIA has trained and built up and is run by the uh, Somali Intelligence Agency in partnership with the CIA, goes out in a convoy, goes south of Mogadishu to a seaside town. Perhaps Someone spots that convoy in the dead of night and calls ahead to the target area. We don't know for sure. But in any case, the Gashan forces, accompanied by Michael Goodbow, a Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6 veteran who joined the CIA in 2009, was there mm-hmm. advising, participating in the raid. Gashan goes into the house. A militant escapes. He goes to a vehicle. This vehicle is laden with explosives. The Somali fighters and Goodbo approach the vehicle. The man in the car detonates it. Michael Goodbo is critically injured. He is flown out to Ramstein, Germany, to the the hospital there. But he is fatally injured. And 17 days later, on November twenty-fourth, he dies.
2: Now this this reflects the kind of thing that has been going on in Somalia for years. Some of it presumably from the same unit that Michael Goodbow was in. But also, you write about some contractors that have been used to recruit and train fighters for the Somali government, at least the part of the Somali government we're working with. And some of those employees have died even though they're presumably focused on training isn't that right yeah the bancroft group which has had the big
1: contract in somalia has had seven people seven of its employees die in in somalia which is a which is a huge number and they're supposed to be training the african union troops training the military troops but it just shows this line between Training and participating on the raids can get kind of fuzzy, and so the training missions can be quite dangerous.
2: A lot can happen in the next three years. like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at
0: UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music, for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Lawfare. for Lawfare listeners today get 20% off your delete me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout the only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout that's joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 code lawfare 20. And what were your
2: sources telling you about the the impact of this, this raid in particular in November 2020 and, and the overall pattern of these raids? How was how that affecting how the Trump administration did some changes to its positioning in Somalia and what the Biden administration inherited? So- The Trump administration kind of loosened the
1: restrictions, particularly on drone strikes, airstrikes. But uh, overall, you know, responsibility for oversight of these raids was pushed out of the White House and the National Security Council and by and large went down to the CIA itself or in the case of military strikes to the U.S.-Africa Command. And that had the effect of increasing the amount of activities. And very crucially, Somalis contend that the number of civilian casualties increased, that some of these airstrikes, maybe they got their targets, maybe they didn't, but they also ended up injuring women, girls, people who were clearly non-combatants in this. And there's been questions about whether the U.S. has been Prompt enough for paying uh, reparations for people inadvertently killed. And, you know, this is an old story. We've all heard it, right? If the mistakes that you make in a counterterrorism war can build resentment, the very people you're trying to help can come to see you as a, a dangerous enemy. And so that's a risk here as you increase the pace of your strikes you know, what is the larger effect on the country? And so that brings us to today, right, where the Biden administration is wrestling with what to do. The Trump administration pulled out a lot of the military advisors, you know, there were 700. Now there's only a 100 military advisors Hmm. there. And the Biden administration is trying to say, is putting more military Forces back in going to help. Is it going to stiffen the spine of the African Union to stay longer? Is it going to solidify the gains that have been made in Mogadishu, or is this a situation like Afghanistan where you know no matter what we do, we're not going to stop the the rise of of Shabab over time?
2: Right, and we will circle back to looking forward at what the Biden administration could and perhaps should do regarding Somalia to to close the conversation. But before then, Amelia, Julian just brought up the reactions of the Somali people to the fact that this loosening a bit, if you will, of the constraints on U.S. forces in Somalia has led, presumably, to greater civilian deaths. Now, Somalis, according to a lot of reporting over the last 10 years, most Somalis do not appear to be fans of al-Shabaab. That is, they do not have a, a mass popular movement throughout the country rooting for them. But Somalis, also most Somalis, really don't like intervention from the outside, particularly Ethiopia, which has been associated with some of the US intervention back to the actions against the Islamic Courts Union in the last decade before this. So where does that leave us? The Somali people seeing perhaps more military action that is not going after Al-Shabaab, or it is going after Al-Shabaab, but is causing some civilian casualties. Does this matter for the receptivity of the Somali people that, that you need to work against Al-Shabaab in the future?
3: No, the Somali people are in a very difficult position because honestly, the, the answer is their own security services should be the ones acting to protect them. It shouldn't necessarily be a foreign actor, and they certainly can't rely on al-Shabaab clearly. So I think the Somali people are left in a bind. I think from their perspective, they're looking at two bad choices in some way, because it's not just the United States and their drone strikes. There have been reports of, for example, Ugandan forces committing extrajudicial killings as well, among others. uh, The foreign intervention writ large has not been an easy road, but you're quite right. At the same time, al-Shabaab is not hugely popular. Aside from these little pockets where they provide some services that are better than nothing, it's still not necessarily the population's first choice. I think really where the Somali people would benefit is if their own police and military could overcome these clan divisions could develop a camaraderie and a sense of broader national mission and interest, have the supplies and training they need to really assert control over the country and provide those services that they exist to provide.
2: Sure. Julian, there's there's another side to your reporting on on Somalia in the Times that I want to touch on, which is the fact that these special operations... Are not the sole u s government activity in Somalia that Washington is by far the largest foreign donor to Somalia. Can you talk through a little bit about u s aid versus perhaps a comparison country and and tell us why that may not be as effective in winning hearts and minds as Somalia as it is elsewhere? This
1: is really interesting the u s is the biggest donor in Somalia and it provides a, a range of you know practical aid but the decision has been made that you know when the US provides something it's not stamped United States government it's not stamped United States Agency for International Development and so there's there's little branding of it and then if you look in comparison to say Turkey which has a smaller level of aid, but Turkey has prioritized bigger projects and they're very good at letting Somalis know that they're helping and that they're there and that they are doing stuff. And so my colleague, Declan Walsh, who was there on the ground in Mogadishu, was talking about how you, you feel the presence of Turkish aid and that the Turkish government is helping Somalis in a way that you don't feel that for American aid, even though the dollar figure for American aid is is much larger. It's an interesting conundrum for the United States. Do you increase your branding, or is it going to, you know, make that aid a target for Shabab, or is it going to cause people to resent it? But if you do what we do now and you know keep things on the uh, on the quiet, then the average person in Somalia does not feel the United States is, is helping in a constructive way. And so, you know, this is a a critical question. How do you make sure that it does not seem like your counterterrorism policy is all you got going? How do you make it so that foreign aid is as effective as it can be and is understood by the population you're trying to help.
2: It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you have the pure humanitarian goal of helping the Somali people who who continue to need massive amounts of assistance. And if the most effective way of doing that is to channel it through partner organizations on the ground that don't want to be publicly associated with the United States, there's a strong case to be made that this is the the best policy. But in terms of buying goodwill in terms of setting up a longer term relationship with the United States that that might actually be helpful to these very same people. You put that aside if you decide not to put a target on the back of the people who are working with the United States aid organizations. Amelia, talk through that a little bit. And if you can contextualize that with examples from other countries around, both in terms of US aid, but in terms of how U.S. cooperation against local militants. And I'm thinking here all the way down to northern Mozambique and other examples of how the United States walks a a very thin line in terms of helping governments without undermining public confidence in those very governments.
3: It's a very, very difficult and delicate balance to strike. You know, you, you brought up northern Mozambique, which is one of my favorite topics of conversation. So here we go. The U.S. has had to be very discreet in its engagement there for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Mozambican government itself has been very cautious about accepting foreign military engagement. Um, that's changed somewhat since July with the deployment of Rwandan and later SADC troops to the area. But previously, they were very hesitant to engage. So when the U.S. came in, they kind of, they didn't. I would argue in a pretty good way to accommodate that concern on that end by providing discreet training. It was just a little embassy press release with a couple of pictures. Um, and it was training generally sort of to commandos, to Marines, clearly with a vision to helping out the security situation in Gabu-Belgadu. But the sort of other benefit of this discrete approach was to not provoke a lot of response from those actors who would potentially lend aid to the group operating in northern Mozambique. As we saw, as we mentioned earlier, in Somalia, the intervention of the Ethiopians with a little bit of U.S. support was a big draw for foreign fighters to come into Somalia and help al-Shabaab back in 2006, a situation which I think everyone would like to avoid happening in northern Mozambique today. So by being a little discreet in its intervention, it also, I think, the U.S. helped avoid provoking any of that kind of response. But you're right, there's, there's a challenge there. You can become so discreet that people don't know to give you credit when you are doing something to help promote stability. And that public perception is such an important factor in any sort of conflict. Um, it's one of the key factors that allows an insurgent group to grow And that allows a government to counter that insurgent group, is gaining that popular sentiment, that popular support. And how you do it when you can't do it loudly becomes very difficult. And sometimes it is just a series of these discrete measures that can kind of help build quiet goodwill that eventually expands as the people you interacted with in this training move on to other assignments, interact with other people, bring to bear the lessons they learned to improve security in these areas. Excellent.
2: Okay, so let's take all that and look to the future. Julian, first, you you report that U.S. officials are currently mulling over whether to send back some of the troops that Trump had moved to, I believe, Kenya and, and Djibouti. But the policy review takes place In the context of a larger debate over how to view al-Shabaab in US counterterrorism strategy, on the one hand, it's a Somali issue and it really matters for governance in Somalia and the use of US troops to essentially keep them bottled up in Somalia and and not do damage within the country. On the other hand, is the view that no, al-Shabaab has aspired in the past and may aspire in the future. To be a global terrorism operator, and they could be a threat not only outside of Somalia, but even a threat to the US homeland. Talk through the contours of that debate just a bit to prepare us for what Biden should be doing.
1: Yeah, and you're right to put your finger on this question, and this is a very, very important one for the United States to get right. How much is Al Shabaab a local and regional threat, and how much is it a terror organization akin to Al-Qaeda or Islamic State that will eventually have the ability to strike in Europe or the United States. So the director of national intelligence, when she was listing off the countries that pose a greater threat to the U.S. homeland than Afghanistan, put Somalia first on the list. And al-Shabaab has in the past had aspirations to attack America. You know, Michael Goodbow, the CIA officer who was killed, for him, the most important thing, why he spent a bulk of his life protecting, you know, serving in the military and the CIA was to protect Americans. And he felt that being in Afghanistan and then being in Somalia was critical to protect his family his friends and america writ large but if you look at al shabaab and we've talked about it here like their focus is very local i mean they're they're taxing imports into somalia they're running court systems they you know they're day in and day out are are very focused on running somalia so The Biden administration needs to wrestle with this question of what is the threat of Al-Shabaab today and what is the threat tomorrow if it's left unchecked? And then once you determine that, you can determine what are the level of resources that should go to keep Al-Shabaab in check to prop up Somali government, to help a Somali government evolve to represent more of its people and govern more effectively. Mm -hmm. So I think you're exactly right. We need to
2: understand this question and make a judgment. Amelia, you get the last word on this. And I think we need to acknowledge that no international policy decision gets to the president's desk if it's a really easy one. They're almost all hard. This one seems particularly hard. When you were a, a CIA analyst, you weren't making policy recommendations, but you are freed from those shackles now. (laughs) Now, as an analyst, you are free to make policy recommendations. So Joe Biden calls you in his office and says, Amelia, I need your advice. What would be the best US approach to Somalia and Al-Shabaab going forward? What do you tell him?
3: So I think for me, there are a couple of factors to consider. When you look at insurgency studies and studies of foreign intervention into conflicts, one thing that comes out that has stuck with me ever since is you, the foreign power, can't want this more than they, the host government, do. Now, in the case of Somalia, who is the host government and how do we measure how badly they want to see al-Shabaab managed, contained and eliminated? Do they want it more than they want power for their particular clan or sub-clan? Because I think that's sort of the decision that needs to come from within. And once we have that level of commitment, it makes our job a whole lot easier. Absent that level of commitment, then I think we need to look a little bit more closely at the population. They're a key factor in all of this. They're the ones that have the scoop on troop movements, on al-Shabaab movements, who's involved, who's supporting, where they get the support. Those are like your key sources of intel oftentimes. And gaining that level of trust and support to gather that information to better inform your policies, your approaches, your missions against al-Shabaab is really important. So I think perhaps in the absence of having a, a strong government that you can really work with and get that level of commitment from the top, then maybe the alternative is to start at the bottom. And to work to build bridges with the local communities to help the Somali authorities, the police and military at that very local grassroots level build those bridges to gain that information, to launch those better operations, to start undermining Al Shabaab from below. I think another point that Julian made earlier in this podcast, and one that to keep in mind today too, is that there are some people within the organization who are potentially irreplaceable those people who are good at messaging those people who have special talents and bond making and what have you again collaborating with the locals to find out who those people are where they're getting their training and undermining the organization from there who are those key leaders that without without which the organization suffers is another sort of approach to get at the group from the bottom up ultimately for long-term stability you will need that functioning government in place, that government that puts the national interest over any sort of personal interest, or at least finds a way to align the two in a way that benefits the nation. But in the shorter term, I think maybe looking at the lower levels may be a way to work around that.
2: It's not too often that you hear Somalia and hopeful note in the same (laughs) sentence, but I got to say, we almost ended on a hopeful note there, and that's the way to do it. Both Amelia and Julian, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please rate the podcast and share the podcast. And don't forget to visit the Lawfare Store for your merchandise related to everything Lawfare. If you want to become a material supporter of Lawfare, you can sign up on our Patreon page. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Patja Howell. Hamza Shatou is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?